As we finish God, John's Gospel the next over the next four weeks, um, we examine the end of Christ's earthly ministry. And the, the, the title of today's message is The End, The Arrest. And then next week we'll talk about The End, Pilate. And then we'll talk about The End, Crucifixion. And then we'll talk about The End, Death. And then after that, we'll talk about The Beginning. Uh, but I want to take your minds, if you would, just with me to that place um, that evening that Jesus was arrested. and There was so much going on at that point in time, so many different dynamics, so many different uh, emotions. Uh, we had betrayal going on. We had... Um, Suffering that was about to take place. We had doubting that was going on all over the place. And in the darkness of that, um, that garden, uh, out of the darkness from a distance comes, uh, torches and, uh, soldiers. And they came to, to take our Jesus and lead him, uh, before a, a phony mock trial, uh, to, uh, dance him before uh, earthly leaders who were nothing but a sham and ultimately to lead him to the place of the cross. So let's pick up here in this place in the garden in John chapter 18. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons." Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? And they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When when Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am He. So if you seek Me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that He had spoken of those whom you gave Me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given Me? I want to talk first, out of these the first 11 verses, I want to talk about some amazing things regarding this arrest. So you may say, may say to yourself, what is possibly amazing about Jesus Christ being betrayed and arrested in the garden? I think you'll see there's three things here that just jumped out at me that were uh, beyond the pale, like things that just shouldn't be happening, and yet they were. And the first is this. I noticed here in reading this text, and we should this morning notice the fact that Jesus went when he was arrested despite knowing how he would suffer. 
Jesus went despite knowing how he would suffer. This is an amazing uh, truth, if you dwell on it. You see, fresh off of his time of prayer, we read that in John 17, he ends up in the garden uh, here at Gethsemane, and, and we know from the other Gospels some of the private prayer time that Jesus had with his Heavenly Father there. Uh, but this sentence that, G, that is stated here in John's Gospel should not be lost on a one of us. He said that as they came into the garden that night, did you notice Jesus' response? Quote, Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward. Now stop there and think about that for a second. Jesus, knowing everything that was about to happen to him, came forward. Jesus, knowing the betrayal, Jesus, knowing the scourging, Jesus knowing the beatings, Jesus knowing the shame, Jesus knowing the mockery, Jesus knowing the wrath, came forward. Not a one of us would have came forward if we knew what He knew. Not a one of us would have came forward. Especially if you were perfect. This is how great the love of God is towards us. This statement spells it out so clearly. Jesus, knowing all these things at this moment in the garden, that the hour had come, still went forward. That's how much He loves us. See, it's it's important for us to remember this as well in our lives. Here's a truth for the Christian in the room today. When you know God's will, go courageously. When you know God's will for your life, go courageously. If Christ teaches us anything, there's so many lessons that He teaches us here out of this. The depth of His love is the number one lesson that we should get out of this. But also knowing that if God has called you to something, go courageously. There will be pieces that will need to be picked up. There will be things that will need to be accounted for. There will be planning that will need to take place. There will definitely be difficulties in the midst of the calling. But the truth of the matter is, if God calls you according to His will to something, go. And go courageously. Not because you'll avoid pain. And don't go because it will... Be easy and it won't require effort. And, and don't go because, uh, you know, we can think of a million different reasons to not go. But if God calls you according to His will to go, you must, 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 must go. Because God's for it and God is in it. We know this from 1 Corinthians 15 when Paul said this. So he encourages the church. He says, So my dear brothers and sisters, be strong and immovable. Always work enthusiastically for the Lord, for you know that nothing you do for the Lord is ever useless. I wish more Christians had that attitude and understood that reality. We we operate in an economy that's not God's economy most of the time. We look at things and we don't see immediate payoff, so we think it's useless. Last night, um, 
we were at Fort Indian Town Gap, and and uh, where my parents are buried, they're buried in a columbarium, which is where you know you take their remains and they go into a like a holding thing, and then they put a plaque on front of it or whatever. And and there are just hundreds and hundreds of these all around. So the kids um, usually when we go, like you, you try and pull people's life stories off of the different things, and people put different things on there, you know. And it's always amazing to see. Uh, you know, uh, one of the things we noticed was the difference in generations, that pe- what people named their children generations ago, you know. So you see where Harry married Myrtle, right? So when was the last time a child was born that was named Myrtle? Uh, we don't have many Harrys out there nowadays either. But World War II vet, Harry, married Myrtle. They loved each other till the end. That's what was said at the bottom. And uh, Purple Heart from World War II, and then he went on and he served in Korea, and uh, he served in the Navy and in the Air Force, and just on and on and on. I mean, like, served in two different branches of government, Purple Heart, two theaters of combat, and two wars. Uh, and th- the amazing thing is, like, Mindy and I are saying, and she, she turned to me and she said, you know, all the hassles of life, all the stuff that we do, all the things that have troubled us from one day to the next, and eventually it's all right there. And I said to her, I said, the good news is, I believe with all my heart that the work that we've done for Christ Church is going to last longer than any of these columbarium covers and plaques. We'll have a plaque. All of us will have a plaque. But have we done something courageously? Because God called us to it, have we gone courageously? That's going to last longer than your plaque. Because within, let's be honest, within two or three generations, nobody's going to come to your plaque. That sounds sad. But what you do for Christ now will last for eternity. Go courageously. The second thing we learn here, the amazing truth. So Jesus, knowing all this, he went. He went, knowing that he would suffer. But the second thing that's amazing to me is that Jesus went despite knowing who he is. I originally wrote uh, knowing who he was, and then I had to correct myself and say, no, 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 he still is. Jesus went knowing fully who he is. What's so amazing about this? He asked them when they come into the garden with torches and swords, and they come forward, you know, and Judas, we know from the other Gospels, betrays him with a kiss. And Jesus has to ask them, who are you looking for? I mean, talk about going courageously. He goes to his uh, cap, uh, captors and he says, who are you looking for? And they say, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. And what's his response? I am he. Now, not just a simple statement that you know should be lost on us. I am he. This is the Greek phrase, Ego emi, which is the uh, Greek equivalent of, in the Old Testament, what we call the tetragrammaton, which is the, the, the term Yahweh in the Old Testament. It's when uh, Moses asked God, who, who should I tell the Israelites has sent me? What name? And God said, you tell them, I am. 
So Jesus says, who are you looking for? And they say, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. And basically Jesus says to them, I am. Now, what's so crazy about this whole scene, I wish I could have been there to see this thing play out because I don't think my mind is doing justice to what this scene actually looked like. But if you noticed, this is a phrase that Jesus used a lot in the New Testament. He wasn't afraid to use this phrase about himself many times. I am the bread of life. I am from above. I am the living water. I'm the light of the world. Before Abraham was, I am. And on and on and on. Many times he said this. He said these words here, and we read, just read the fact that his accusers, the people who are coming to arrest him, actually fell back and to the ground because of what he said. We know that they understood this. Now, I'm not so naive as to say every single one of them did this, because in this in this group of soldiers, uh, and we'll talk about this in a second, but they were probably Roman legionnaires and they were temple guards. My guess is the temple guards were the main ones who fell back because they recognized exactly the phrase that was just mentioned by Jesus here, and they recognized that anybody but God who said that was blaspheming. But Jesus said it and they fall backwards. Why? See, this isn't a peasant man. Jesus knows who he is. This isn't a peasant man. This isn't a cowering criminal in the garden. This is a man on mission. This is God on mission. He knew who he was. He had no problem recognizing it and saying it, and yet... God in flesh still went forward to take the scourging, the suffering, the mocking, the shame, and the death on our behalf. So struck were these guys in the garden. There had to be an adult in the room, I guess, because Jesus, in order that the plan would be fulfilled, had to ask them a second time after they fell to the ground, look, guys, stand up. Who are you looking for? And then the arrest takes place. Oh, how Jesus must have thought of the glory that he once had as he used this title now to step into the deepest, darkest levels of despair and hurt. This is the same Jesus who would say triumphantly in Revelation 1.8, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. This is the Almighty stepping forward, despite what was to come. Now, those two facts are amazing. He went even though he was going to suffer. He went even though he knew who he was. This wasn't something that was a God thing to do and yet he was going to do it because he's a God who loves. But the third thing here that's amazing about this arrest is that Jesus went despite knowing the wrath that was to come. The wrath. After Jesus tells Peter to put the sword away, which is a whole other hilarious scene that we'll talk about, he tells Peter to put the sword away, and he says these words. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? He refers to the cup here. Again, 
just like he did in the Synoptic Gospels when he prayed to the Father and he said this, like in Matthew 26. He said, and it tells us that going a little further into the garden, he fell on his face and he prayed, saying, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. The cup is heavy on his heart. The cup is the most significant thing in his emotion right now. And when Peter pulls that sword out, and Jesus is thinking to himself, no, 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 the mission is about the cup. The mission isn't about defeating these people. The mission is about redeeming these people. The mission is about uh, not about vengeance. The mission is about God's vengeance on mankind's sin. That's what's in the cup. The cup was God's anger and proper and righteous judgment and full wrath upon the sin of every single one of us sitting in this room, of every single human being that would ever be born onto the face of the earth. God's wrath must be poured out upon sinful people in judgment. And yet, Jesus stepped forward said to Peter, put the sword away. The mission is about the cup. The mission is about me taking the wrath of Almighty God on your behalf, Peter. Quit acting so squirrely and making it about yourself. It's about the cup. This was such a a seismic shift in the spiritual realm. This was this was this was the, the pinnacle of spiritual forces at war in this moment in the garden. When Jesus could have walked away from his mission, when God's wrath was fresh on his heart, and yet Peter thought a sword could make a difference. Now, a little, uh, a little transition thought here. So we head into the last three points. I want to talk to you about the hilarity of this scene as well, because as I was devoting on this the past couple of weeks, I kept thinking to myself, there's just some really, um, and I mean this in a reverential way, there's just some really funny stuff about what's going on here. Uh, first, the first thing that's hilarious to me is that Jesus even allowed them to find him in the first place. He clearly wanted them to find him. Now, I want to put a couple pictures up on the screen, all right? So, Alan, go ahead, throw the first picture up. I took this uh, last June. Um, This is the Garden of Gethsemane, and it's kind of hard to see, but in the upper left-hand corner, you see the um, gold dome of the mosque there at the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. So as you come out of Jerusalem, there is the eastern gate, which is walled in right now. It's not going to be opened again until the Messiah returns. Uh, the eastern gate has been sealed shut by the Turks. Uh, but as you And that wall there, that scene, uh, it drops down severely as you come out of off the Temple Mount, as you come out of Jerusalem. It's the same place where uh, Satan would have taken Jesus in a vision up to the, uh, you know, the top of the, the Temple Wall and would have said, you know, throw yourself down and, and uh, surely God's angels will rescue you. And you remember Jesus' response, you know, don't put the Lord your God to the test. Um, but 
you go down and you come into a valley, uh, which is called the Kidron Valley. There's a, a, a wadi there or a brook that fills during the rainy season called the, the Kidron Brook. Uh, so you come down and then you begin to go back up again out of the Kidron Valley, which when you begin that ascent back up is the Mount of Olives. Well, there, uh, a short way up at the base of the Mount of Olives is this beautiful olive grove. Uh, it's uh, most likely, it still is today, but back then it would have been a private garden. And you go to the next picture there, Alan. Um, so this is, this is what it looks like today. I mean, those are like 800,000-year-old, 1,200-year-old olive trees there. Uh, so it would have been in this vicinity where the Lord would have been arrested. Uh, it's where he would have prayed, um, asking the Lord to take the cup away from him, yet not my will, but your will be done. Now, why am I telling you this? Um, this was a popular place for Jesus and his disciples. The scripture tells us that uh, Judas knew exactly where Jesus would be. I mean, he frequented this place so often, and you can see why. Um, I was blessed to be able to have private prayer time and devotion time there for about an hour and a half, and it, it just is a, a gorgeous place to sit and reflect on the goodness of God and his sacrifice. And so Jesus would go there often with his disciples to pray. Judas knew this. And Jesus knew that Judas knew this. And I'm driving home the hilarity of it because these guys think that they have captured Jesus. There is nothing about this evening that is happening that has not already been ordained by God and passed by his desk of permission. Uh, these guys didn't show up and capture Jesus. Christ went voluntarily. I know y'all wish you could go there now, don't you? I'll let you know when I go back, and you can. We'll all go together, and we'll have devotion time there in the Garden of Gethsemane. Um, the second funny thing is this: it's, it's hilarious to me. This guy, this servant, you know, he shows up. Peter cuts off his ear, uh, and Jesus heals him. I, I don't. It's significant because God puts it in his word. It's significant um, because in the midst of the evil that is occurring in this and the evil that is occurring towards the Son of God, the Son of God is still loving and conscientious of his loving state enough to reach out and heal this man's ear. The man who has come to bind him and take him to his his. Uh, arrest and his punishment and eventually his crucifixion, this man is the catalyst to Christ's death and yet Christ reaches out in the chaos that was. You know, we know that John Mark even was so anxious to get away that he ran away and was stripped of his clothes. He ran away naked. He was in such a hurry to flee. And in the midst of all this chaos, Jesus stoops down and heals this man's ear. Because nothing is lost on a loving God. In the midst of the chaos of our life, Christ still reaches down and touches us even when we are at our most wicked towards Him. That poor Peter, he's not even good with a sword. Probably aiming for this guy's head and he gets an ear instead. Jesus rebukes Peter 
And then he heals the ear. Let me read the account again in Luke 22, verses 51. It just te- All we know about it is Jesus said, No more of this. And he touched his ear and he healed him. Now, my guess is that if a sword comes across an ear, you're probably going to be missing at least part of an ear. What it doesn't say is that Jesus reached down and he picked up the ear and he put it back on. It just says that Jesus touched his ear and it was healed. Why? Because Jesus Christ is a creator God. He, he makes things out of nothing. So to put an ear back on this man is not that big of a deal. He just touches him and gives him a new ear. That's what he does. The third hilarious thing about this evening is this. He heals his captors, we know that. He goes willingly. Uh, He tells them where he can be captured. The third thing, they came with so many soldiers and they tied him up. They came with all these soldiers for one man. And then they bothered to tie him up. say, what's so funny about that? It says that Judas came with a, the Greek word here is a, a spira. It's translated a band or a mass of soldiers. In Roman times, a cohort of soldiers was at full strength with at least 600. Now, I'm not saying that there were 600 soldiers that came. If it was a full cohort, it would have been a spira. Uh, a spira would have justified a number of at least probably 100 or more soldiers that would have came that night, to arrest one man. Um, This wasn't unusual for the Romans. I mean, everything that the Romans did was a tour de force. Everything they, they did was to exhibit power and authority. So if it was this man and some fishermen and whoever else was following him privately in that garden that night, they were going to go and they were going to make a statement. They were going to make a statement. Um... But this crowd of soldiers was mixed between temple guards and Roman legionnaires. They could have taken Jesus any time. Why did they choose now? Well, because it was less of a spectacle publicly to go and take Jesus out of the garden than it would have been during Passover in the middle of Jerusalem. You know, it's not that long ago that Jesus had just ridden into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey, and there were if hundreds, if not thousands of people chanting Hosanna. They believed that their Messiah was coming, so they chose to do this on the down low. But here's the funny part if you think about it. No matter what the number of soldiers Rome showed up with, if Jesus wasn't going willingly, that number wasn't enough. You can read the Old Testament and see clearly the number of soldiers never mattered to God. Ask the Amalekites, ask the Hittites, and on and on and on. It was never an issue. So they show up here and they they uh, arrest and take the Son of God. And Jesus himself even alluded to this. He told Peter at this moment in another gospel in Matthew 26. You remember these words? He tells Peter, he says, Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father and He will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? I mean, angels that is? I mean, 
they didn't, the Roman legionnaires, they didn't even, they didn't even send a, a, a spira. They didn't even send a, a cohort. And yet Jesus says, I, like that, I could have 12 legions of angels here. This, nothing that's happening here, this is what I want to get home this morning. Nothing that's happening in this awful, wicked night is happening apart from the willing obedience of God's Son and the desire of the Father. This is supposed to happen. It has been ordained since the beginning this night would take place. Christ knows this. It's hilarious to me that these guys send this many men for one man. And it's also hilarious to me that no matter how many men they sent, if Christ didn't want to go, it wasn't enough. And then, again, like no matter how many men they send, he says... I'm he, and they all fall down anyway. It's so obvious that Jesus was going willingly. So here he leaves, and he goes to the base of the Mount of Olives. He's arrested. He's a suffering servant. He would ascend. This is the beautiful part to think about, too. Later, he would ascend from this same Mount of Olives as the resurrected Savior outside of Jerusalem, and his disciples would watch him, you know, and they'd be staring up in the sky. And then those two dudes showed up and said, what are you looking up there for? Do you know he's going to come back the same way he left? We know this is true, because we read it in Zechariah 14. Let me share with you how Christ is going to return. This is a great verse to remember when you think about the end time scenario. It says, on that day his feet, this is the return of Christ, his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley, so that one half of the mount shall move northward and the other shall, uh, other half southward. And you shall flee to the valley of my mountains, for the valley of the mountains shall reach to Azal. And you shall flee as you fled from earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. That's us, by the way. We'll be a part of that whole scenario going down. And on that day there shall be no light, cold, or frost, and there shall be a unique day which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but at evening time there shall be light. On that day living waters shall flow out of from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea and half of them to the western sea. And it shall continue in summer as in winter, and the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day the Lord will be one and his name one. This place where he's arrested is significant for all time. Where the Lord is going willingly to be arrested and to suffer is the same place where the Lord will eventually return victoriously to judge all the living and the dead. That makes me confident. He's coming back as a judge and a victor forever. Now, let me close with a few points here. We talked about the amazement of the rest, the arrest. I want to read to you the rest of this arrest account in John 18, picking up in verse 12. We read this. So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and they bound him. First they led him, led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Ironically, that's exactly what's happening. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. 
That would be John. He always refers to himself in the mysterious. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, You also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? And he said, I am not. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold, and they were standing and warming themselves. And Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. And Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews come together. I have said nothing um, in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. And when he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? And Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, You also are not one of his disciples, are you? And he denied it and said, I am not. And one of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, Did I not see you in the garden with him? And Peter again denied it. And at once the rooster crowed. You see the stand for truth taking place here. And it's going to continue next week when we talk about his meeting with Pilate. Jesus is brought, he's arrested and bound and he's brought first before uh, Annas, who was actually technically not the sitting high priest at the time, but he had been high priest, and history tells us that he was removed uh, from that position uh, for political reasons resulting or regarding Rome. Uh, and it was his uh, son-in-law, I believe here, who is Caiaphas, who was sitting as high priest at that time. But Annas was the one behind the scenes who was still controlling most and wielding most of the power. So it makes sense that Jesus would be brought first to him. And he comes before Annas. That's a fascinating place to go to. You can go there today. You can go to the high priest's house where Jesus was led after he was arrested. You can see the uh, uh, there are several chambers uh Beneath the house on the side of the hill, there's some chambers beneath the house where Jesus was most likely kept um, while he was under arrest there at the high priest's house. But this is how Jesus stands for truth, even in the midst of his arrest. First thing we notice here is that Jesus avoided duplicity. duplicity. It's a fancy word that just simply means He's not saying one thing in public and another thing in private. He's not doing one thing in public and something different in private. Jesus assures the high priest that everything that I've said has been out in the open. There's no secrets with me. Simply put, he tells the high priest that he and his message were not one thing in public and something completely different in private. Who Jesus was privately is who Jesus is perfectly, uh, publicly. Who Jesus was in his behavior privately is exactly who he is publicly. Which raises the question, Jesus is so confident in this, even in the midst of his arrest, 
He avoids duplicity. Can we, as Christians and as followers of Christ, honestly do the same when questioned by the world? Are we the same privately as we are publicly? Are we the same when we're in the world as we are when we're in the body of Christ? It's it's not duplicity that they're hearing, but rather they're hearing the truth of Ephesians 4.18, where Paul writes this. He says, they're darkened in their understanding. He's talking about unbelievers, and specifically in this instance, you could say he's talking about the high priest. They're darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their heart. Jesus is not duplicitous. The people who are listening are spiritually ignorant. They're incapable of hearing what he's saying. So they're accusing him of lying. The second thing here in this stand for truth is that Jesus is quite content to trust in his public witness. Jesus trusted in his public witness. Go ahead, Alan. Jesus trusted in his public witness. This is the ability of Jesus to turn to everybody in that room and say, it's not just what I said. Ask anybody. They'll attest to what I've said. Don't just take my word for it. Go ask somebody else. The ability to turn to everyone in our lives and say, ask them. They'll tell you who I am. Jesus was comfortable turning the ball over to his listeners and saying, don't just judge me based upon my words, but judge me based upon what other people have heard me say. And lastly, Jesus leaned on his integrity. He avoided duplicity, he trusted in his public witness, and he leaned on his integrity. Let me read it one more time in verse 23. Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? This this is a telling statement. Uh, again, this is where they try and trick Jesus, and Jesus just is not capable of being tricked. He knew his words, and he knew the way he was handling himself, even amidst the venom of his accusers. And he knew that everything that he was about was true and correct. And he was able to turn it around on his accusers. there is going to continually be in our lives friction. The world is is going to think things about Christ and His church. The world is going to accuse Christ and His church of things. And ultimately, what we fall back on is who we are in Christ. Who we are in our integrity in Christ. Who we are publicly and privately in Christ. If we are content with who we are in Christ, then the world has no sway or saying over who we are. This should encourage us. I want to do this. Contrast what Jesus does here in the midst of his betrayal, in the midst of his arrest, 
these accusations that are being made against him. Here you have Christ standing before Annas and then Caiaphas, and he's accounting for himself, and he's doing it in truth. He's leaning on his own integrity. There's no duplicity in him. He's the same person publicly that he is privately, and then sadly, out in the courtyard is Peter. Handling himself the exact opposite. Peter is duplicitous in all of his statements, is he not? Oh, you, you, you're one of his disciples, aren't you? You were with him. Don't know what you're talking about. Never heard of the guy. You know, I just kind of see Peter out there. You know, he's warming himself up. This guy. I don't know who he is. This Jesus guy. He sounds like a bad dude. Now, don't bother me. I don't have anything to do with him. I make light of that, but it's a super sad situation that's going down here. How duplicitous and fearful is, 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 is Peter? He's, he's lying to little servant girls who answer the door. That's how afraid he is. And you say, oh man, Peter, what a, what a loser that guy is. What a shame that he would behave, himself, behave that way. Look guys, we do the same thing times in our life. Maybe it's not a little servant girl, but it's the person that sits next to you at the office. Like, are you one of those Bible beaters that goes to church every Sunday? So rather than having the awkward conversation of why you enjoy going to church every Sunday, you're kind of like, well, you know, I go sometimes. That's duplicitousness. Duplicitousness. Try saying that. It's, it's duplicity to do that. And Peter distances himself from everyone. John knows the high priest. Somehow he's got a connection with the high priest. He goes in. He tries to bring Peter in. Peter's out in the courtyard warming himself. And what does Peter do? He sacrifices his integrity for his safety. This never works out. Not in God's eyes, it doesn't. We are so concerned, especially as American Christians, you see a different attitude in a lot of places around the world, but we think that Christianity and safety go hand in hand. Actually, in a lot of respects, it should kind of be the opposite. We worry about, you know, well, I'll do this for Jesus, or I'll do this for the church if I can assure that there's this payoff in the end, or that I won't have to walk through this thing. Or I'll commit so far, but if God wants me to commit any further, I don't know what that looks like, so I'm not going to commit to that. Well, that defeats everything we've been talking about. Being obedient, going courageously, operating the same publicly as you are privately. Safety. If you're a Christian and you are a Christian because you think that it will be safe or safer for you, you're missing the entire scope of the Scriptures. From beginning to end, people who follow God faithfully are not offered safety. Many, 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 probably 80-90% of them, just read Hebrews 11, the majority of the people who have offered themselves up in obedience to following Christ did not experience safety. Yet here Peter is, everything he had claimed, all the blustering, all that time, right? This is a story of Peter. <laughs> Hours ago, if that, I'll die for you, Jesus. 
I'll be arrested for you and I'll die for you. And now he's standing there at the door and he's looking at the little girl and he's saying, I don't know him, honey. Never heard of this Jesus guy. If we're not careful, safety can be the determining factor on what we do for God. And it dare not be. You're going to miss out on some of the greatest work and blessings of God in your life if you are if it's contingent upon you being safe. And let's stop praying that people that God keep us safe. And maybe we not pray so much that God keep our children safe. Maybe we start praying more that God give our children integrity and that God give our children obedience. And God gives our children a willing passion to go wherever He would lead them, no matter what the world thinks of them. The reason many churches are struggling and many churches are dying is because their focus has gone from the mission field and the work that's involved in reaching Christ, reaching the world for Christ, and it's be turned inward and it's become about maintaining. I pray that this would never be a church of maintaining. There's going to be risk involved. Sometimes it's going to be um, you know, making some financial or time sacrifices or commitments that are above and beyond what other churches are doing in order to reach the mission field. But we lean on God's truth. We lean on the obedience that Christ has called us to. We lean on the integrity that He has given us. And we lean on the fact that God will see us through. The work of Christ is hard. We see that in the garden. But let's move forward in confidence what He's going to do. God loves us that much too. Let's take that away from this message today as well. How much does He love us that He would go through this? So next week we'll look at um, this amazing interaction between the Roman procurator Pilate and Jesus Christ on this last day of his life. Pray with me if you would.